0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning.
1: When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come and right now it's the best price of the year at $29 go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29 that's s y l v a n 29.com
2: hello and welcome to another episode of the weeds i'm john colin hill We're off this week, working on more policy deep dives for you. But do not worry, we didn't leave you hanging. Today, we're revisiting a conversation from earlier this year that my colleague Dylan Matthews had with Felicia Wong, president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute. They had it shortly after President Joe Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act. The conversation is about industrial policy, It's about this idea that the United States has drifted away from the supply side of economics and makes the case to manufacture and build things here again. We hope you enjoy.
3: So there are a few names for the broad cluster of ideas we're talking about today. Industrial policy is is kind of a classic term. Janet Yellen has has referred to a a modern supply-side economics. Our friend Ezra Klein called it supply-side progressivism. Danny Roderick, the economist, called it a a new productivism paradigm. So what do you call it, and what is it? What are we talking about here?
4: Oh, Dylan, you started with the hardest question. (laughs) Because, you know... I think that all of these things, industrial policy is what we usually call it at the Roosevelt Institute, but you know, new productivism, supply side progressivism, these are all pretty wonky, pretty terrible <laughs> names for an old and kind of intuitive idea, which is that government should care about which parts of the economy are healthy and should provide capital or other kinds of incentives to make sure that those parts of the economy are working for people, for the public. I just don't know that ultimately we're going to sell this to anybody as (laughs) supply-side progressivism or the new productivism. And so I kind of think that someone way better than me at marketing, frankly, someone way better than most policy wonks at marketing, should figure out how to describe and explain this because, you know, it makes a ton of intuitive sense when you say something like, well, gosh... We should take a bird's eye view of the economy. We should look at the places in the economy, whether it's physical places like a geography or sectors like the clean energy sector or the childcare sector, the sectors that we want to be healthy. And we should try to figure out how to make those things better. That makes sense to people. I'm not sure that industrial policy <laughs> really is something that most people would understand.
3: So yeah, as, as you point out this seems kind of intuitive to people. And there's a degree to which sort of it's normal on the campaign trail to hear politicians say, like, we need more uh, healthcare, we need to train more nurses, we need uh, more manufacturing here at home, and, and to talk in ways that suggest they have thoughts for individual sections of the economy. But the idea that the government should be sort of making these kinds of decisions it has been really controversial over the last 50 years or so, and there's been big pushback against it. Tell us a little bit about that. Why did industrial policy come to have a bad name?
4: You know, industrial policy really does have an old legacy, whether it's the Roosevelt New Deal, where Roosevelt said, wow, we should make sure that workers have strong income and we should do that by making sure they have jobs doing things like building dams and building bridges. That was an idea that really animated much of the American economy. It animated the World War II economy throughout much of the 20th century. But around 1970, An idea arose that we now call neoliberalism. There's a big debate as to whether or not the neoliberals actually called themselves neoliberals. But anyway, it was a much more market fundamentalist idea promulgated by economists like Milton Friedman and before that uh, Friedrich Hayek. And the idea there was that actually the government should keep its hands off of the economy, and that instead, the market itself was going to know what was best for people. And so what really mattered there were producers, who became entrepreneurs and consumers who would send a signal to those producers, we want to buy this at this price. So this is how much a pair of socks costs. This is how much, you know, a gallon of milk costs. And this is what we're willing to pay for it. And that idea became extraordinarily popular in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, especially when the idea that government should be working to, help set standards for the economy and help direction for the economy, that started to look like that was not working in the 1970s as you had oil shocks and other disruptions to the economy that started to make prices rise. So there was a big question in this stagflation of the 1970s, hmm, maybe government shouldn't be playing the stronger role in the economy. Maybe instead we should let the market rip.
3: What were the consequences of that change in in worldview that you you saw a lot of of deregulation some some shrinking of government, some lower taxes. What did that do for our actual productive capacity and for sort of the sectors of the economy where industrial policy was previously really shaping things?
4: Well, the problem with this kind of neoliberal market fundamentalist approach is that it did not work even as measured by its own terms. So one of the things that neoliberalism promised was that you were going to end a kind of boom and bust cycle in the economy and that you were going to have steady, strong growth. That is not what we have seen over the last 50 years. In fact, economic uh, crises have been quite rampant, as we all remember, uh, from the Great Recession 12 years ago now. But then most importantly for this conversation, with respect to the question of supply in our economy, one of the things that we have all lived through and experienced in the last 40 or 50 years is a boom and bust, not just of the economy as a whole, but actually a boom and bust regionally. So we see some places in this country that have done extraordinarily well under a neoliberal economy. You see places like Silicon Valley, like New York, like Wall Street, where there's a tremendous amount of wealth. And then you see other people and other places that have really been left far behind. So there are whole sections of this country that have not seen strong job growth for the last 30 years. But you also see whole communities of people, mostly black and brown people, many of them immigrants from Latin and Central America, those communities just are not seeing the kinds of jobs and the kind of stronger income growth that you would have expected if markets were working properly. So one of the consequences of a kind of let the markets rip philosophy was that a lot of income went to the top, very little, actually was evenly distributed. And you had entire sectors of the economy, including parts of the manufacturing economy, and frankly, including parts of what people now call the care economy, healthcare, childcare, child um, care, where people were either not getting jobs or were getting jobs that were incredibly low-paying. And this is the kind of inequality that has led to a tremendous amount of both political duress as well as productive duress. And that's what industrial policy uh, is intended to fix.
3: So yeah, so let's let's talk through some of the tools of industrial policy and, and you and your team at Roosevelt have been trying to develop some of these tools and 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 outline how they can be used for for a while now. I remember you all were talking about this in, in twenty sixteen, twenty fifteen, when when it very much wasn't on the agenda and when sort of the kind of shortages we saw during COVID didn't seem possible and, and now it feels more relevant than ever. But what are some of the the ways government can intervene that it hasn't been that seem promising and that seem like ways to undo some of the wreckage that you were just outlining?
4: Industrial policy as a whole is an idea that's been burbling around for a while from a lot of different places. A team here at the Roosevelt Institute has worked on this for at least the last five years. We've really been arguing that there are places like green manufacturing that will require government to actually set higher standards, perhaps put in some seed capital. And these are some of the tools that government can use include putting early investment in, using public procurement, meaning government buys things. Government buys hundreds of thousands of automobiles, for example, every year. It would be better if those automobiles were electric the other thing generally that government can do is to set standards for labor. One of the important things to remember as we talk about industrial policy is that it's not just on the capital side, it's also on the labor side. So as some of these sectors become stronger, as we see stronger, you know, electric vehicle charging station manufacturers, let's make sure that the workers who get jobs in those industries are paid a strong wage and are able to actually join a union. So those are some of the tools that we at Roosevelt have been talking about for at least five, eight years. Other people talk about the importance of setting a real North Star for the economy, and that's a good way for people to think about this. Uh, My friend and colleague, Mariana Mazzucato, who has been called the world's most influential economist, I think that's because her ideas really are kind of intuitive in this way. She says, why in the world would government need to be hands-off about the economy? What about a mission economy? And she harkens back to things like the time when the government decided – We really ought to try to go to the moon, for example. There are all kinds of economic benefits to the economy here on Earth that came from um, that set of decisions in the 1960s and 1970s. And so people like Mariana try to encourage us to get back to the mission economy And then finally, you really have to look at the role that the climate movement has played in all of this um, over the last five years. You know, you have a lot of people in the climate movement, most obviously the Green New Deal folks who hearken right back to that Rooseveltian New Deal. Government should set standards and should set goals for decarbonization in our economy. And you also have climate people who are working with union people like people at the Blue Green Alliance who say that, you know, we need government incentives and seed capital and worker standards to point our um, economy in the right decarbonizing direction.
3: I did want to sort of play a little bit of devil's advocate for the old market folks for a moment, just because I do think there's there's a common question that people from that background might have during this discussion, which is that one of the things that, that people like Hayek specifically really pressed on is that the economy is incredibly complex. You need a lot of knowledge about it to be able to manage it uh, intelligently. And I think the piece of his argument that made a certain amount of sense to me was that that markets are able to promulgate certain kinds of information about what's scarce, about what's abundant, about what it costs to make certain things, and can spread that information faster than than governments often can. But I wanted to, to hear some some of the theoretical responses that the you and other people have come up with to that of how can governments intervene, have enough information to intervene, and be confident they're not making things worse um, and get around some of those knowledge problems that the sort of more right-wing critics were bringing up in the, the 30s through the 50s.
4: Yeah, well, I think you're right that there is something compelling about markets when they work well, Right. Price signals are incredibly powerful, and they're ways to get local um, information, information from individuals or from individual families or from individual communities spread across a vast network of people very quickly. And so that is a powerful thing about markets. The problem with the markets that we have seen created over the last 30-odd years is that, number one, that information is highly imperfect, right? We see some firms, often large firms, able to hoard that information and to keep it. It's what you see a lot when you see critiques of like the surveillance capitalism, you know, the surveillance capitalism crowd will make this argument. But lots of people will make arguments to say that there's lots of data, sorry, to show that basically this kind of perfect information didn't actually really work that well in theory and certainly doesn't work that well in practice. And so markets become very dysfunctional and very sclerotic. The second thing to say is that actually economies should have directions, and those directions are not always best met or best determined by consumers at any given moment, And to some degree, it's a collective action problem. Many people would argue or say that we would really like to wean ourselves off of oil and gas and have cleaner energy and move towards a more decarbonized system. But that is a really hard thing to do if the market is just left to its own devices and if the oil and gas companies continue to be very strong, both in their political lobbies Trying to keep their own tax rates low, for example, and their ability to make profits very high. And if they already have the infrastructure in our economy to continue basically feeding us dirty sources of energy, it's really hard to start up, especially in the energy sector. It's extremely hard to start up something new. And for that to happen fast enough, universally enough, and in ways that are going to enable some kind of green or just transition, you're going to need government to point us in that direction. However, that being said, I think it's important to point out that the version of industrial policy that we're talking about now, that most Western nations are talking about now, and especially the Biden administration is talking about now, is primarily about trying to seed or start New economic directions in particular sectors, but then they're talking about actually bringing private sector money in. They're trying to. They're talking about incentivizing um, the private sector to, for example, make electric Ford 150s or or to build more EV charging stations or to build more wind turbines. It might take the government to help determine how and where to site those wind turbines. But the goal here and the strategy here is not to supplant the market, but it's to crowd in market sources faster. Now, that, that approach actually has a set of critiques from the left, but I think it's important to say that The Biden administration's theory here is that you would be able to take the best of government direction and the best of markets and use them together to create a stronger and more robust and more equal and more green economy.
3: We're going to take a quick break, uh, but when we come back, we're going to dig a little bit more into the Inflation Reduction Act and what it means for uh, the next era of industrial policy in the U.S. Stay with us.
0: That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
2: Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together, or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds.
3: All right. Uh, We are back with Felicia Wong of the Roosevelt Institute talking about industrial policy. And it is a good time to be talking about this because we're we're talking shortly after uh, Joe Biden officially signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. People have probably heard a lot about the billions and in investments for for green energy in that bill, but um, you and some of your your colleagues at Roosevelt have, have also talked about the ways in which that amounts to an industrial policy for green energy. Walk us through that, and and sort of what is it about the way that the Inflation Reduction Act deals with climate that sort of adopts a, a industrial policy approach as opposed to sort of a, a different approach.
4: Yeah, well, I'm happy to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, but I'd actually like to do so by thinking about it alongside some of the other big legislative pieces we've seen recently, including, most interestingly, the CHIPS and Science Mm. Act, which is the big semiconductor bill. It's worth thinking a little bit about the bipartisan infrastructure law, roads, bridges, broadband, airports. Airports, got love fixing those airports. Um, and I'd even like to think about it um, in relationship to the American Rescue Plan, which I think of as kind of industrial policy for the labor market. But let's start with the Inflation Reduction Act because that's sort of on everybody's mind. There are three really big pieces to that. My favorite might not actually be the climate piece. My favorite actually might be the piece that actually begins to fix the tax system mm. by $80 billion Going to the IRS, the IRS can actually... Collect taxes, especially from rich people. That seems like a really important starting point here. The IRS notably does not audit rich people as well as it audits poor people. So that's a problem. There's another piece of the Inflation Reduction Act that is about making healthcare more affordable for people. And importantly, it's about giving government the ability to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies to keep prices of certain prescription drugs down. I think that should be more aggressive, frankly, and I think it should happen faster. The law actually won't take effect until 2026. That being said, there are other pieces of the Inflation Reduction Act that also do start to shape our economy and shape the kinds of revenues that we have in our economy beyond the climate piece. But I'm assuming that the climate piece is the one you'd like me to talk about the most here since that's what seems to be getting totally appropriately, the most attention.
3: We can talk about both, but, but uh, why don't we start with climate and then we can dig into some of the others.
4: Okay. I think the most interesting piece of the climate portions of this bill is the carrots, right? This is all about tax credits and rebates for all kinds of renewable green technologies, solar panels, wind turbines, heat pumps. If you're Listener out there who hasn't yet heard of a heat pump, you will soon. <laughs> You'll probably be wanting to have, you know, some kind of induction stove and some kind of heat pump system for your house. And the point of the Inflation Reduction Act is to make that more affordable for you. This is supposed to generate and incentivize much more efficient energy for our homes. And it's also supposed to encourage us to consume clean electricity. The Inflation Reduction Act also includes lots of incentives, not just for consumers, but for companies to manufacture more of that technology in the United States. And overall, the idea is that many of the industrial or manufacturing tax credits, which is basically an incentive to say if you invest in this, it's going to cost you less because you'll pay fewer taxes overall, But it's a kind of carrot to encourage companies to invest in greener production and in clean electricity, period, full stop. And one of the most interesting things about this is that suddenly you have people talking about all kinds of production and all kinds of new supply in physical places where we have not seen strong jobs, strong manufacturing for a generation. So you're really talking about the potential of seeing New kinds of jobs, new kinds of manufacturing jobs, new kinds of jobs that might not require a four-year college education in places like Kentucky and Michigan and parts of Ohio, as well as places like Georgia and Mississippi. So you're really starting to see the potential for a kind of new domestic manufacturing that, at least in theory, would be a win-win because you're going to see jobs And you're going to see green. You're going to also have consumers who will have incentives and the ability to actually purchase some of this for their homes. So that is the idea behind the tax credit approach that the Inflation Reduction Act has put on the table. I do have a criticism of that in that I think that sometimes you need sticks as well as carrots if you're going to wean yourself off of oil and gas. You can't just make green more accessible and cheaper. You also have to make other sources of energy that are carbon-producing much more unattractive. But that's the general approach, about $370 billion in uh, tax credits that'll go to cleaner, greener technologies.
3: You brought up the Chips and Science Act and, and the Infrastructure Act those are, are both, in some ways, like even more explicitly industrial policy bills, than the Inflation Reduction Act, and I think have gotten less coverage in part because they were so bipartisan and that they weren't the center of the kind of heated fights that build back better and then uh, the Inflation Reduction Act were. How do you interpret them and, and how how different are their approaches to sort of building infrastructure or expanding semiconductor capacity, respectively, from mold approaches and and sort of what What of this new sort of industrial policy reasoning uh, have they incorporated?
4: I think both of them, and especially the Chips and Science Act, I think that that in particular is perhaps the best example of pure industrial policy that uh, we've seen, frankly, in a generation and certainly in the last 10 years. You know, the goal of the Chips Act is to strengthen our money that goes towards basic science research. And in particular, the most important and interesting element is about $50 billion, $52 billion that is designed to really strengthen U.S. leadership in semiconductor production. That is because most semiconductor production, which used to be American in the nineteen 70s, 1960s, 1970s, is now most semiconductors are now built in Asia. And for a lot of reasons, including national security and including being able to secure our own supply chains, um, the Biden administration has made a strong argument that we really need to bring semiconductor research and development and manufacturing and jobs back home. That money is going to mostly run through the Commerce Department. You know, the Commerce Department is going to become, by the way, a lot more important department in, not that it wasn't always important, <laughs> Secretary Raimondo, please, that's not what I meant to say. But, you know, with the authorization of $52 billion and a brand new office to really determine how and where that money is spent, like that, that's a tremendous amount of power to shape. Um, the direction of this critically important industry because, as we know, semiconductors are kind of in everything. They're in cars. They're in computers. It's, they're, in a way, part of the lifeblood of the modern economy. And so having semiconductors both produced at home, produced in the range that we need to see them, and produced um, throughout this country, that is industrial policy at its very core.
3: We're going to take one more break, uh, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the future of industrial policy and where we go from here after the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the rebirth of industrial policy in the early Biden term. So stay with us.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team.
3: And we're back with Felicia Wong talking industrial policy. So we've had legislation dealing with semiconductors and and science funding. We've had legislation dealing with infrastructure in the U.S. We've had legislation dealing with clean energy and clean technologies and, and expanding production and access to those. What are some of the big holes where government has not sort of taken needed action to guide certain industrial sectors in the direction they need to go. What would your wish list for future acts uh, in this vein be?
4: Well, I think there are two separate parts to that question. One is what was totally left off the table, even given all of the legislative success we've seen. And then the second part is to say, well, even given what we've seen, What's going to actually happen in real life with all of the laws that were written? So that's like more an implementation question. But just on the first part of your question, Dylan, the most obvious thing to say is that the care economy was completely left off the table. And if you look back to, you know, some of what people were talking about in the first 100 days, the idea that you would fix the childcare system in this country and fix the elder care system in this country, uh, which right now is completely broken. Most of the people who have those jobs, they're mostly women, mostly low-income immigrant women. They're paid extraordinarily little, that's mostly because their employers are individual families, and so they really don't have any bargaining power. Those women get paid very little. And yet for most people who need either elder care or child care, it's super expensive. It's an incredibly significant part of most working families' budgets to either pay for child care or pay for care for an elderly parent or a loved one. And so that is a broken market that's a broken sector and there were a lot of great ideas for how to fix that including making sure that some of those women were actually their employer of record was going to be the state so they could set a floor for their um for those wages rather than individual families helping these folks actually unionize and organize people like Ai-jen Poo and sarita Gupta had been have been working on and making sure that we have state insurance, some kind of social insurance to pay for all of this. Uh, People like iGen and Sarita have been working on this for at least as long as I've been working on the rest of this industrial policy stuff. And that got totally left off the table. That is an enormous problem, both for families in America and for women, mostly women, working parents, but especially women who would like to work, but for whom childcare is just an enormous burden. So it's an economic problem as well. So that's my number one thing that still has to be read into, dealt in to this industrial policy approach.
3: Yeah, and I think that, that gets it something i I also wanted to talk to you about which is the degree to which sort of industrial policy is a left thing versus something where you can get buy-in from across the political spectrum obviously roosevelt is is a progressive organization uh it's in the name but the idea that we should have abundant energy housing has some some bipartisan resonance and you have some groups on the right or center right like uh and american compass that have embraced some somewhat similar concepts and have, have been excited about a rebirth of industrial policy. But then you get into the nitty gritty, and I don't know that they would be on your side on things like the care economy and, and expanding access to, to childcare. So, how big is that overlap uh, between left and right on this? And, and sort of how promising or not promising do you find it as, as a basis to, to move forward?
4: Yeah, well, I think one of the interesting things here is that ideologically you do see some overlap broadly between progressives and I guess they would call themselves traditional conservatives now, or maybe I I don't I don't know how they're exactly uh, describing themselves. But you're right that you do see that overlap. And you also see overlap in terms of partisanship, right? The Inflation Reduction Act got no Republican votes. But CHIPS had a lot of Republican support. So I think it's worth unpacking all of this. Just on the partisan side, it's important to note that a lot of industrial policy and a lot of CHIPS in particular was focused on competing with China and national security. Now, lots of Democrats support that too. But I think one of the reasons you saw a lot of support from the Republican side for stronger semiconductor manufacturing in the United States was purely about competing with China. I think that's interesting. Frankly, that's one of the reasons that you saw support for a whole bunch of industrial policy in the 1950s, 1960s. It was about competing with the Soviets. So, you know, this is a pretty old story in American politics. Uh, it does make sense, but more ideologically, less sort of realpolitik and more ideologically, it is true that And I think this goes to the absolute failure of that market fundamentalist neoliberal approach. It's not like market fundamentalism didn't work for the left, kind of didn't work for anybody. And so you see people on the center right as well, also seeking ways to increase American manufacturing, create better jobs for American workers. I think in the nitty gritty, where some of it breaks down, is in things that are more, much more about social conservatism, to be honest with you. So, for example, you know, Mitt Romney and Orrin Cass, the founder of American Compass, have an argument for family support, but their proposal for family support rewards marriage in ways that progressive groups don't tend to. So... There are lots of similarities and there are some important differences in the ways in which both center left and center right would go about this. However, I do think it's pretty important politically and could point to a kind of genuine realignment in a sort of pro-economic, pro-worker, pro-growth way if we could begin to agree on some of these industrial policy pieces. Just the piece that I would say is that, and of course this is where the left and right fight a lot these days, it is extraordinarily important, from my perspective it's extraordinarily important, that we make sure that industrial policy deals in communities and families and people who have been explicitly and deliberately left out of You know, the ability to both earn an income and to accumulate wealth. People have been left out specifically because of race, specifically because of gender, specifically because of immigration status. And that absolutely must change. And that's a place where I think right and left might end up having a set of arguments. We'll see (laughs) that that remains unwritten. The other two critiques that I think are worth bringing up here, one of which has kind of a left valence and one of which Mm. has kind of a right valence, Um, I think both sides are a little bit worried about where is this thing going to go? Mariana Mazzucato and Mission Economics and the Roosevelt Institute, you all might sound great, but like in real life, what is actually going to happen here? Um, And I think people on the left, including, to be fair, the Roosevelt Institute, really worries that we're not going to have enough guardrails on this whole thing, right? It's just going to be corporate welfare. It's not actually going to create jobs equitably. It's not actually going to repair these generational harms. Um, Instead, you know, it's basically going to shovel a lot of money out the door to Intel, which is already doing pretty well. Like that is the concern of a lot of people on the left. I think it's a totally valid concern. And I think it's something that we really have to watch for in the implementation and the writing of further guidance from all of these federal agencies um, for as these laws get implemented. So that's kind of the critique on the left, fear of corporate welfare. I think On the center right, you see a concern that, you know, you and I have talked about before, Dylan, that, you know, Ezra Klein says he's really concerned that liberalism can't build because, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's not fair To say that it's only center right, but there's certainly a concern that includes people on the center right that says that environmental regulations and all kinds of local democracy have enabled a kind of NIMBYism, so that all of this well meaning supply is just going to get stifled on the ground by local people who are empowered to say no. So that's another critique that I think we have to take pretty seriously. I think there are real answers to that critique, but I think we should. We should listen to that. So I think one important thing to say about all of this is that because it's really new and because it's mostly come from the minds of like policy wonks, we're really not good at telling the story of what this is all about, right? This is not just a laundry list of tax credits, manufacturing incentives, and new ways to combat zoning. This is the power of this whole idea is actually the idea that we the American people can change our economic direction. We need a bird's eye view of this economy and we need everyone needs to be pushing to make the good things in this economy work and work better. And I really hope we can learn to tell a story. And I really hope the next person you talk to about all of this, Dylan, isn't somebody like me, but is somebody who can really talk about it in ways that are visionary and that paint a picture, because I think that will be important not just for our economy, but also for our democracy and our democratic future.
3: That's all for us today. Thank you so much to Felicia Wong for joining the panel today.
4: Thanks so much, Dylan. Super fun to be here.
3: Our producer and engineer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Our editorial director is A.M. Paul. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.